Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show 191. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Now, get a look at the artwork with this. Yes, our good friend Ben Wooten has delivered a fantastic cover for this amazing story by Michael Moorcock. And if you notice, this show is scraping in on the end of the month. This is the very last day for the end of the month. And to be honest, it probably should have went last week. This I've just all lost with work and dates and times and everything like that. And it was only... Mr. J.J. Campanella, that kind of pointed out, say, Tony, you missed the deadline for the artwork and for the show, for the end of the month show, because I had Jim's kind of fact article there waiting to go, and never even thought of it, because it's a bit of a long month, this one. So it's a Tuesday, but we are scraping in with this kind of this last show, so we're getting five in this month, so that's really good. But please, look over that artwork and pop over to Ben Wooten's site. Ben is actually going to help out with Volume 3 of Starship Sofa as well, so that is really nice. Thank you, Ben. It just stunned. Do you know what I mean? And, you know, God, we've got a Michael Moorcock Elric story, which is going to be in three parts as well. You can't get better than that. So, let's jump in. Give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. There's only a couple of things. Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news. And like I say, part one of Michael Moorcock's The Black Petals. Before we get into any of that though, first off, D has asked for a little bit of announcement or a little bit of a request. We are looking for artists to go into volume three. We've got some. But if you're a kind of fan of the show and you want to be involved in kind of volume three of Starship Sofa Stories... Contact me or D, just starshipsover at gmail.com. That's starshipsover at gmail.com. Get in touch and I'll forward you over to D and D will kind of ferry out a story or just put some of your work in. You know, you don't have to kind of get it sorted from scratch, but it would be nice anyways. There you go. Get in touch if you want to be in an artist, if you're an illustrator and you want to be in volume two. Volume two. Volume three. That would be fantastic. (laughs) 
So first up is Mr. J.J. Campanella with his Science News. Greetings and felicitations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this May 2011 Science News Update. I'm your host for this evening of scientific conjecture and spectacle, Jim Campanella. Hello, all. I hope that spring is going well for you up here in the Northern Hemisphere. And yes, I do realize that it's fall below the equator. And I hope also that you're enjoying these relaxing days before either the dog days of summer or the cold blasts of winter. You will notice that I have seldom spoken about my own scientific research in all the time that I have done this podcast. Part of that is because I'm not sure that anyone would be interested because it is the kind of abstruse stuff having to do with plant hormone physiology that not many people would want to hear. It's the kind of stuff that even people in my own field yawn over. I still remember my doctoral advisor snoozing at seminars. What was amazing was that he always asked these penetrating questions of the speakers, even though he was apparently dozing through the whole talk. I still don't quite understand that conundrum. Anyway, I was invited to speak at a conference, which I went to yesterday. Uh, Because my work tends to be quite academic and not so applicable, I do not get invited to speak at many conferences. I was obviously quite pleased to be invited to this one. The name of the conference was the State of the Bay Conference. What bay are we talking about? Well, Barnegat Bay. Barnegat Bay is the long bay that runs along the coast of New Jersey. The Jersey Shore, as it is called around here and in that horrid reality TV show with Snooky and the Situation. Barnegat Bay is a small brackish arm of the Atlantic Ocean approximately 30 miles long and about 10 miles wide. It runs along the coast of Ocean County, New Jersey, in the U.S. It's essentially a long estuary formed by Barnegat Peninsula, a long barrier peninsula, as well as the north end of Long Beach Island. The bay is fed by several small rivers, including Tom's River, which empty into the bay through small estuaries along its inner shore. The communities of Tom's River, Silverton, and Forked River sit on the river estuaries on the bay. The bay is entered from the ocean through Barnegat Bay Inlet, along which sits the Barnegat Lighthouse. The bay is part of the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway, entered on the north end by the Point Pleasant Canal and connected on the south end with Little Egg Harbor via the small Manahawkin Bay. In a broader sense, the bay is sometimes considered to stretch to the south end of Lock Beach Island, and to include Little Egg Harbor. The areas surrounding Barnegat Bay and Barnegat Inlet were described by Henry Hudson in 1609 as a great lake of water as we could judge it to be. The mouth of the lake hath many shoals, and the sea breaketh on them as it is cast out of its mouth. The bay was originally discovered in 1614 and was called Berendegat, or the Inlet of the Breakers by the Dutch settlers, referring to the waterway's turbulent channel. And during the American Revolutionary War, the bay was actually used as a refuge by American privateers. As with lots of similar places along the east coast of the U.S., Barnegat Bay is in serious ecologic trouble right now, not just because of natural privations, which are always present, but a whole bunch of mistakes humans have made over the last 50 years or so have just worsen the situation. 
I was asked to speak on my research for this conference and to also be part of a panel discussion because some of my work involves the study of the population genetics of eelgrass, known to scientists by the species name of Zostera marina and to the public as seaweed. Okay, I can hear you snickering out there. Campanella does research on seaweed. Is he serious? Well, my Padawans, you may snicker all you want, but let me tell you a bit about eelgrass. Eelgrass is like the canary in the mine when it comes to the health of a marine coastal region. Back in the 1940s, there was a pandemic that killed off like 70 to 80 percent of the world's population of seagrass by a fungal pathogen called wasting disease. These die-offs have only gotten worse over the last 70 years because of things that humans have done. Uh, Zostera needs clear, cold seawater to grow. It grows from northern Canada and North America down to North Carolina here. As the water becomes more turbid and full of nasty things like algae, the grass beds start to die out due to limited oxygen and limited sunlight. Low oxygen levels are linked to phytoplankton blooms and macroalgae. These micro and macroalgae bloom when high levels of human waste or fertilizer from farms run off to the ocean and increase the nitrogen levels. Nitrogen levels in water also increase from far too many cars, buses, and trucks in the area. And additionally, they increase when the area on the shoreline gets built up with homes and businesses and roads. What happens is, is you lose the natural watershed with all its trees and plants. Loss of those trees and plants means that nature is no longer soaking up all that extra nitrogen and using it as fertilizer and getting it out of the groundwater. Well, the population around the bay has soared towards 600,000 in the last couple of years, and a great deal of the watershed has been paved over, causing storm drains to funnel more nutrients straight into the bay. Since 1995, Development has grown in the area around Barnegat Bay by 25 to 30%, replacing the woodlands that once soaked up all that water. The U.S. Geological Survey in 2009 estimated 1.43 million pounds of nitrogen were coming into the Barnegat Bay estuary on a yearly basis. This all leads to algal blooms, which again leads to anoxia and water turbidity, which again leads to dead aquatic plants. Once the grass beds pack it in, then you lose a primary nursery for all sorts of marine animals, from small fish to clams and mussels and scallops. Of course, the process is like a snowball going downhill. It just gains momentum, making itself more unstoppable as it continues, if it's not intervened with. Seagrass meadows in Barnegat Bay have lost 50 to 88% of their plant mass since 2004. This is an absolutely critical indicator of the bay's declining health. Dr. Mike Kenish, one of the other speakers at the conference from Rutgers University, made it clear that the seagrass is physically not doing well. He says that the grass beds are, quote, frayed like old doormats, unquote, and no longer luxuriant anymore. This is at least in part an indication of a serious loss of biomass, Biomass is the actual weight of the eelgrass calculated from samples, which measures length and lushness. These biomass values have declined to their lowest levels ever measured, says Kenish. He says that the grass bed 
biomass has declined in six years since 2004 by 87.3 percent. Almost as bad, the root systems underneath the soil of these plants, their mass have declined by about 64.7 percent. Now, I am not an ecologist, despite what the Asbury Press called me when they wrote an article about the conference. I do not do field work, as I told my colleagues yesterday. I am a geneticist and a lab guy. So why did they want to hear me talking about eelgrass? Well, I've been collaborating with an ecologist for several years now, and I've been studying the population genetics of the Zostra in Barnegat Bay. As I explained to the listeners yesterday at the conference, the health of an organism is not just determined by its physical health, but by its genetic health as well. In short, if you lose large parts of a population in any organism, you'll lose genetic diversity. Literally, by the way, genetic diversity is just how diverse the genome of an organism is in terms of differences between alleles. Die-offs, whether natural or induced by humans, lead to first a reduction in population sizes, obviously, and then to genetic bottlenecks or genetic drift, which limit genetic diversity. Uh, a bottleneck occurs when you start with a large population, and then through some disaster you lose a large proportion of that population. You're left with a limited and not very diverse subpopulation. This leads to genetic drift as this smaller population starts to go through a process of crossing and repopulation. But the upshot is, is that you are left with reduced diversity at the end of the disaster. Finally, you also get isolation of populations as you start to get smaller and smaller ones, which leads to more inbreeding and reduced interpopulational gene flow and then further loss of genetic diversity. The problem with limited genetic diversity is that it means that a population has less depth to its genome. You can kind of use a sports analogy here to understand this and compare a genome to a baseball team's bullpen. A good bullpen has lots of left and right-handed pitchers who can throw fastballs and change-up pitches and all sorts of stuff to deal with any situation that may arise in a game. If a bullpen only has right-handed fastball pitchers and nothing else, and has no depth and cannot deal with certain situations the team might get into with certain hitters. And the team will lose their season and probably be sold to another town when they go broke. Now imagine that the genome is the same in some sense. With limited diversity, the genome is similar to having only right-handed pitchers. It cannot adapt, and the organism is much more likely to die out. Now, we're not talking about a game here, but the actual survival of the organism. Here is a more practical example of why lack of genetic diversity is bad. Bananas as we know them are likely to die off in the next 10 years or so. The Cavendish variety of banana, the large pulpy dessert banana that currently accounts for virtually all the world's trade, is being killed off by fungus. This amounts to nearly 20 million tons yearly. Unfortunately, with an 8,000-year-old genome, which is relatively new, the edible banana hasn't evolved to keep up with new pests. In short, it is not genetically diverse. The pests which are killing off the banana include the black cigatoka leaf-destroying fungus, which has devastated vast acres of bananas. It cripples plants and reduces output by 50% or more, 
Close to half the banana crop in Uganda, for example, has been afflicted with this fungus as it spreads throughout the world. Bananas are the world's most exported fruit. Cooking bananas and plantains, eaten, fried, boiled, baked, or chipped, are the staple food of 400 million people in poorer countries. Commercial banana varieties are highly vulnerable to pests and diseases because they're near clones of each other. So a disease that strikes one could sweep them all out. And there you have the worst-case scenario of low genetic diversity and its effects. By the way, the banana has been wiped out before. In the 1950s, Panama disease wiped out the then-dominant commercial banana Gros Michel. Cavendish, which resisted the disease, was introduced then. But Cavendish could soon meet a similar fate. At any rate, my group has been examining different genetic alleles in populations of eelgrass plants all over Barnegat Bay. We look at the genetic alleles and statistically analyze things like frequency of heterozygosity versus homozygosity. Heterozygosity is particularly important because the more heterozygous a population is for certain genetic alleles, then the more diverse it is by definition. Remember, homozygosity means you have the same sequence at an allele on both your homologous chromosomes. And heterozygosity means you have different alleles at the two chromosomes, hence a greater level of diversity. So what did we find? Well, none of what we found was good news for the bay. We found frequencies of heterozygosity, a mean of less than 30%, in all seven alleles that we examined in the Bardigat Bay populations. All those values were far lower than the 50 to 70% levels of heterozygosity expected. The values we found suggest a very low level of genetic diversity. We also calculated to determine what the probability that the plants were breeding only with themselves and their own populations was, that is, inbreeding, and not outbreeding with other populations. And we found a statistically very high rate of inbreeding among these Barnegat Bay plants examined. We also found evidence of genetic bottlenecks in five of the eight of the natural Barnegat Bay populations that we looked at. Again, a harbinger of limited genetic diversity. So what can we conclude? Well, our metaphorical canary, that is Zostera, is dying. The canary not only is suffocating because of the toxic fumes in the mine, but it can't even reproduce very well anymore to replace the dying canaries. My collaborators have been trying to replace and replant Zostera plants back into the ocean beds. There has been success at replacing lost beds both in Chesapeake Bay and in Boston Harbor, so this is not just a pipe dream. The lost plants can be replaced. The problem is, is that first we need to better understand the physiology and genetics of the Zostera and be able to replace it in the long term and have it survive. And second, the conditions in Barnegat Bay need to get better so that the plants that we place back into the bay will not simply die off again. My own group is presently examining the genetics of restored eelgrass populations. One of my colleagues, Dr. Paul Bologna of Montclair State University, restored about a half dozen seagrass sites about 10 years ago now. I and some of my students have had the pleasure of the last few months of analyzing the genetics of these 10-year-old populations. They were originally planted with mixed sets of Zostera 
from different areas around the bay in the hopes that a mixture of plants would induce some sort of hybrid vigor. But this was done blindly because 10 years ago, Dr. Bologna had no idea which of the plant populations that he was planting was the most genetically diverse. Our preliminary analyses of these populations suggest that they indeed have marginally more hybrid vigor after surviving for 10 years in the bay than the naturally developed populations. Although there is still genetic evidence for a good deal of inbreeding and far too low a heterozygote frequency in these planted populations, they are still on average doing better than the original populations from which they were derived. Additionally, we have good evidence that we were able to track which of these mixed populations predominated over the years and survived the best out of the four or so different plant sets that were restored at the different sites, which is a pretty good trick in my opinion. So the take-home story from all this is that New Jersey has a serious problem on its hands trying to save the bay now. The state EPA report on the bay which we were given at the conference, cites 19 different key health factors of Barnegat Bay and notes that 11 of those 19 indicators have either shown no improvement in the last 10 years or worse, they show evidence of severe decline. As long as the low levels of oxygen are present because of the high nitrogen contents, then we will continue to have problems and animals and plants will simply not thrive in the bay. At least there is hope for saving the seagrass bed habitats because we are getting a better handle on how to replace them. But as my colleagues at the conference pointed out, until we get a handle on reducing the millions of pounds of nitrogen being put into the bay and actually ameliorating the crisis that that brings about, then no amount of understanding about the genetics of Zostera nor the work of restoration will do us any good. Let me close with an amusing story which developed today in connection with all this. The dean of my college emailed me today with a computer link and the broad question of whether the university had recently hired my brother. I had no idea what he was talking about. I checked out the link and it turned out to be a newspaper article that was published today in the Asbury Park Press. The article covered the Barnegat Bay Conference that took place there in Ocean County yesterday. The good news was that they freely and accurately quoted me several times in the article from some of the points I made at the conference. In fact, if you look up Barnegat Bay on Google, that article comes up as the first hit. The bad news is that they attributed those quotes to one Dr. Mark Campanella. I was completely flummoxed because despite the dean's unknowing joke, my brother, who's a lawyer by the way, is named Mark. Well... Although the print issues can obviously not be changed, I've already contacted the reporter of that article and asked him to please correct the online version of this minor travesty. Oh, and my brother was highly amused when I told him all about the story, given his complete lack of a science background. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care, beware of reporters of any kind, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Mark, I mean Jim Campanella. Good night. There, Jim. Yes, we have squeezed in. Thank you for <laughs> just in the kind of the month of May. Thank you so much. So we're coming up to the main fiction, and it is Black Petals by Michael Moorcock. I'm just 
chuffed to bits we've got this story and hopefully I'm going to try and grab an interview with Mr. Mr. Moorcock Mr. Moorcock so you, you know it might be Mr. Moorcock to everyone there you know because I don't know if most people probably know but when we kind of started off me and Kieran we flew over with our good friend Kenny Park who listens to the show and we did like a video interview with Michael Moorcock over in Paris and you can actually go and if you haven't seen them you can go over to YouTube they're on there where Kieran and myself in the flesh Mr. Moorcock and he was just amazing do you know what I mean they're just the tales that you know how he kind of got his stories out how you know the kind of the conditions he was in to get them out you know what I mean? just like you know yes drugs strong black coffee and everything were involved and it was just you know just awe-inspiring listen to the guy do you know what I mean so this is part one of Black Petals. It is narrated by Peter Caval. And it's funny, this story has been, to get its two years now, it's been in the kind of making for donkeys. You know, this was going to actually be when we actually launched the website and we kind of had that new kind of art, you know, so we kind of deal with the art a little bit better and have it shown. This was going to be the kind of, the, the kind of feature story, but just... Pete just couldn't, you know, there was just things that were going on in Pete's world and he just couldn't get this. And it's a big story, do you know what I mean? It's in three parts there and it just wasn't happening and kind of machines going broke and all sorts of things. So, But we have eventually got, do you know what I mean, got this kind of finder. And like I say, what a narration it is. And Pete is, Pete Caval is, a writer, voice actor and musician. Do you know what I mean? His talents are just amazing. His short fiction has recently appeared in Night to the Dawn and Sideshow Fables. And his plays have recently been produced in Toronto, Boston, and San Antonio. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> this guy, this guy's a young Larry Santoro. Do you know, he just can do most things. We have a massive fly flying around the, sh- the ship here. How to get that? Pete lives in Toronto with his wife and ferocious cat, and is a, mu- a musical director at the Second City Training Centre. News of his adventures and free downloads of his works can be found at petecaval.com. I'll put a link on the Pete site, like you see. You've, we've played some narrations by Pete as well in the past, and you'll just get lost in the story with Pete's voice. You know, that's just a perfect narration. So do look out for Pete, and a big thank you to Mr. Moorcock for letting Starship Sova play this story. So... The Starship Sova is very proud to present Black Petals, an Elric story by Michael Moorcock, read by Peter Cavell. Chapter 1 The Apothecary in Horse Alley. From the sea, the city of Nasiatiki was a mosaic of vivid color fluttering flags, gilded domes, red battlements, a busy market, tiny black figures. The harbor was vast, serving the trade of the entire southeastern continent. Foot forward in the prow of the Lormirian cutter, peering ahead as the late afternoon set the great port on fire, Moonglum of Elware remarked to his friend on the wealth of shining masts which stood at all angles, like the spears of embattled armies, casting a dozen reflections. The sails were furled, for the most part, tightly rolled blues and loose-hung russets, to match the gargoyles and grim seagulls decorating the hulls. These big ships were local. Others, such as their own, favoring black, dark red, white, and silver, were from months away. The ship's captain came to join them, staring ahead. What a sight! He drew in a breath, as if inhaling the entire vision. After Melnabone, they say she's the most beautiful city on four continents. He looked at Moonglum's companion, as if for confirmation. After Melnabone, the passenger agreed. 
Throwing back his thick green cloak, Moonglum turned his head, hands around the pommels of his twin sabers. Who would have thought we'd find such a rich place after all those half-civilized villages we've seen on the way here? He looked back at his friend, whose blazing crimson eyes seemed to find reflection in the effects of the sun. Set in an intensely beautiful face the color of bone, the eyes were slightly sloping, like the lobes of his ears. His lips were full. His long hair was like poured milk. His eyes stared into a past and a future of equal tragedy. Yet there was a kind of amusement there, too. Moonglum's own eyes were troubled as he contemplated his friend. Elric, last emperor of Melnabone, was breathing heavily, having difficulty moving along the edge of the deck, holding tight to the rail. He was hampered by the scabbard of a massive broadsword, whose hilt was tightly wired to his belt. Not for the first time, the captain turned away, ostentatiously incurious. "'The drugs are ceasing to work, my friend,' whispered Moonglum. "'Were they the last?' The albino shook his head. "'Almost,' he said. Elric of Melnabone and his red-headed companion, refreshed to some degree, stepped towards the busy dock, while over their heads swung goods of every description. Most eyes were on the cargoes rather than the passengers. Only a few noticed the two disembark, though most had no idea whom they might be.' Nasiatiki was not merely busy. The vast port was in celebration. Her very palms seemed to dance. When the two adventurers stopped a passerby and inquired of the uproar seizing the city, the man said that the old system of peacekeeping had, on that very day, given way to the new. The two men were mystified until a passing ship's captain, dressed up in crisp blue silk and black linen on his way to meet a prospective customer, told them the capital city's notorious private, corrupt police force was being replaced by a trained band of municipal employees. These would be free from bribery and arbitrary brutality. At least in theory, said the Tarkashite, whose first impression of the albino's identity was now confused, and who wanted to be on his way, a desire he indicated by glancing at the gigantic public hourglass of copper and greenish crystal dominating the busy quayside. A little amused, Moonglum wished him well, and the two allowed him to continue. Feeble as the young albino had become during his long, uncomfortable voyage, on Moonglum's arm he was still able to stumble beneath the blazing brass timepiece of timber and glass, and reach the inn recommended by Captain Calder Dalk, master of the Morag Bavonia, as somewhere to find clean lodgings, at little risk of being robbed. As they pressed slowly through the narrow streets, full of men and women enjoying a public holiday, he was noticeable as being taller and slimmer than the average. Though his cloak's high collar was raised about his face, it was clear to which race he belonged. The local people paid him no special... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Attention, but those from nations closer to his own gave him a respectful distance. Paying for a quiet room with two hammocks and a window overlooking the inner courtyard, Elric tipped the servant generously when hot water for baths was brought. Moonglum sighed. His friend was too generous with the little money they had remaining. After washing and grooming themselves, they donned fresh linen and went back downstairs. Looking around at the other guests, they judged Dulk's advice reliable. Moonglum's thieves' eyes brightened with curiosity when he saw the main hall of the inn was full of well-dressed merchant seamen, already engaged in the business which brought them half across the world. Men might take them still closer to the edge. Some men were running impromptu auctions with those who had waited days for ships delayed by bad weather. Even Elric, who had traveled widely on dream quests over a hundred thousand years of history and seen much, was surprised by the amounts of money changing hands on speculative bargaining. They sat together under a window in the quieter part of the hall, drinking the local wine and studying a map they had bought in Thakora. The albino was having difficulty focusing. He muttered that the livestock the ships had brought in was in considerably better health than himself. Aren't you at all tempted to untwist those supernaturally intricate lengths of brass and copper which lock your sword to its scabbard? Moonglum whispered, holding a blank scrap of vellum up to the light, because he thought he might confuse a potential observer while he had the chance. Shaking his head, Elric seemed utterly unaware of what two men in a harbor tavern poring over a map might signify to the crazed, treasure-hungry denizens who hung around these merchants like carrion birds. Moonglum knew that Elric feared his blade Stormbringer quite as much as any potential enemy. Indirectly, it was their chief reason for risking this long journey from the few remaining sources of Elric's drugs. In Melnabone's past, before such drugs were discovered, Silverskins like himself had led short, painful lives, usually ending in madness and self-destruction. Only by resorting to the darkest sorcery and trading their souls for supernatural aid could the enfeebled creatures hope to live like others. While the drugs sustained Elric, they did not invigorate him as the sword had. Yet he wished to never draw it again and have more souls pay the terrible price so many had already paid for his own life. To that end, he must find the legendary Noibeluscus plant. For the first time in months, the Pale Prince, reassured that, in Nasiatiki, his reputation was no more than a distant legend, relaxed a little. Thankfully, the bright empire of Melnabone had never extended this far, and the Noibeluscus could soon be his. He had bought the book and map in a market. They had been in the middle of a vast pile of manuscripts, any valuable decoration already removed, 
looted from somewhere by illiterate nomads who brought the stuff to market only in the faint hope someone would put value on it. Map and Herbal had told of the so-called Black Anemone, which grew in a temple's lunarium at the center of an ancient jungle city upriver of Nasiatiki. The plant had all the properties Elric needed to sustain himself. But, another grimoire he had consulted reminded him, the black flower only bloomed once a century, and in full moonlight. So he had gambled on finding it, and forever protecting himself against the sickness brought by his rare form of albinism. A dozen dark legends surrounded the black anemone. Truth could not be told from fable. What all his sources agreed, however, was that the time of the black anemone's blooming grew close. Their departure from Lormir had been hasty. At certain moments, when the seas grew stormy, they feared they would arrive in Nasiatiki too late, and Elric would be forced to fall back on the power derived from his sword. As it was, the ship had docked with only days to spare. Now they had to get upriver to the mysterious city marked on the map. Ancient Sum was now said to lie in ruins, deserted by its folk. Relaxed and wearing the loose silks of Aflatanian gentlemen captains, Elric and Moonglum completed their supper. Then, with his friend at his side, Moonglum at the bar inquired of his friendly, corpulent host if he knew the whereabouts of a certain apothecary with the unlikely name of Nashatak Squet, said to reside in the older part of the port. This brought a broad smile to the landlord's face. So, old Nashatak's found another customer, eh? Even here, so far from the Dragon Isle, they spoke a form of low Melnabonian. Elric raised a white, inquiring eyebrow. Nashatak has a bit of a reputation as a quack in these parts, explained the innkeeper. Though I'll admit I've met a few wise medical men and women from abroad who seem to respect him. And you, no doubt, are one of them, sir. He wrote a much-copied book, I hear. It's often said that local wisdom gets no respect until it's traveled a ways. He's eccentric, I will tell you. He comes and goes a bit, but when he's here he's generally to be found at his shop, in the Moldegore. That's the area sometimes called the Old Fortress. A fortress no longer, but it's where the robber captains who founded Nasiatiki built a great stone keep, and what became a self-sufficient village, for when the lords of Sum came a-visiting, impatient with their thieving— Long ago, when Soom was still powerful, the lords brought an army downriver. They raised the keep, but, having no quarrel with the ordinary folk, left the outer walls and the village standing. Anyway, it's in the Moldegore you'll find him. To Moonglum's further disapproval, Elric put down generous silver. But Soom, I gather, is itself a ruin. What became of her folk? Nothing pleasant, sir, that's for sure. A few of her lords settled here and rebuilt the harbor. Some members of our present ruling council claim them as ancestors, for they were a learned and brave people, according to legend. Others, however, say their blood turned bad with arrogant pride, and they took to perverse teachings and strange practices. All we do know is that Sum is shunned by wise folk, not so much because of any supernatural curse upon the place, but because it is periodically occupied by a nomad tribe of cannibals during certain seasons of the year— I heard that the king of the Oit was the last to go there, seeking some fabled treasure. Neither he nor his men are yet returned. Fearing that his loquacious landlord was about to launch into a series of local stories, Moonglum interrupted gently to ask the way to the apothecaries. The man raised a finger, then led the pair back to his nook behind the bar, reached under a cupboard and unrolled a local map. There it is, just off Horse Street. 
He waited patiently while Elric took a piece of charcoal and, borrowing Moonglum's scrap of vellum, made a quick copy of the map. Then, with a word of thanks, the exiled Prince of Melnabone and his friend left the inn, pushing through still-celebrating crowds, packing streets of multicolored stone and brightly painted wood, whose ornate frontages rose eight or ten stories into the glaring blue-gold sky. They followed the harbor wall until they found the turning into Moldegore's alleys and were soon at Horse Street. The apothecary's sign was prominent at the far end of the narrow, cobbled way, painted on the fading white wall of a tall old house whose black timber beams looked hard as iron. Now that they had at last found the apothecaries, the pair found themselves approaching with a certain reluctant caution. For too long, Elric's quest for his ailment's remedy had ended in failure. Moonglum knew his friend had gambled everything, this time, on what he had read in Nashatak Squet's Herbal and Magical Remedies for Rare Diseases and Conditions, and was almost afraid to proceed. What did it matter that a few good folk had died to feed him their energy? After all, most of those his sword killed deserved their fate. But then he remembered his betrothed cousin Cimmeril, who had died, albeit accidentally, on the point of that blade. Elric's pace quickened. Slipping his silver-hilted dagger from its sheath, he rapped on the door with its hilt. The door was almost immediately opened. A pink-skinned, bright-haired child of indeterminate gender opened its mouth in a question. They gave their names— Moonglum asked for Master Nashatak. The child disappeared, then returned to hold out its hands to lead them through ill-lit halls and passages, up flights of crooked stairs. A mixture of smells struck their nostrils. Chemicals, animal odors, a sweet stink reminiscent of rotten flesh. But, entering the room at the end of a long, twisting passage, they were impressed by its orderliness and the cleanliness of the relatively young man who rose to greet them. He was re-rolling a parchment, and set this down as he opened his arms to them. "'I have your letter, my lord. Let me tell you how honoured I am to receive one as learned as yourself. And of course you too are welcome, Master Moonglum.' "'Ah,' said Elric, embarrassed, "'such learning was commonplace in my homeland, where we absorbed it on our dream couches. I can make no claims for myself.' "'As you please, prince.' Master Nashatak's lank, fair hair was pulled back from his lugubrious, dark-brown face and secured by a fillet of copper. He wore a long, velvet gown, which had been recently washed, but on which the stains remained. He looked curiously at Elric. "'We have an acquaintance in common. Dr. Sirlat Vogue? "'Who sent you this letter?' The walk had tired him. Breathing with some difficulty, Elric reached into his purse and brought out a sealed packet. "'My old friend! Was he well?' Nashatak accepted the letter, breaking the seal. His teeth! Moonglum answered. They were little better when we left Nuthar, but his feet showed some improvement. He inquired after the health of your wife. Still enough of a Melnabonian noble to find such pleasantries irritating, Elric disguised his impatience. She is well, I thank you, Master Moonglum. Visiting her mother on the other side of the river, this is our child. They still had no clue as to the little creature's gender. Its large, hazel eyes continued to regard them from the shadows. Master Nashatak read the letter carefully, holding it close to one of the lamps and occasionally nodding to himself. "'So you've heard of the Noibuluscus by its true name. In your original letter you spoke only of a black flower, and you've come seeking it in the right season of the right year. But I fear there's another searching who has gone ahead of you. Do you know of Tylus Creek, King of the Oit?' 
Moonglum shrugged. We were told he died in Soom, seeking a treasure. He has not returned, that's so, but I heard it from a friend that Tylus, too, sought the Noibuluskos. Elric turned, hearing the child utter a deep throaty chuckle. The flesh eaters caught him and ate him, it said, and almost every one of his mercenary army was killed or captured. Munglum swore. Where did you get such intelligence? The streets. It's common knowledge. Elric laid his hand on his friend's arm. Nonetheless, I would go to Sum and find the black anemone. Where can I employ a guide with a boat to take us upriver? I suspect it will be difficult. There are other terrors, they say, in Sum. We've dealt with fierce beasts and men in our time, Master Nashatak, Munglum told him gently, and supernatural horrors, too. I believe you have. You are evidently soldiers of great courage and resource. Indeed, this letter speaks of your bravery and wisdom. You performed Sir Latvog a considerable service, I gather. Elric restrained his impatience. If he says so. I must have that boat and a guide, sir. I have little time remaining. If it's true, added Moonglum, the black flower blooms only once in a century, at this season, when the moon is full. You will appreciate. The apothecary shrugged. Nonetheless, it is unwise to go at this unprepared. I myself am curious, as you can imagine, but I could not afford the small army needed. Unless you can discover the whereabouts of the Oit King's twin daughters and their escorts, murmured the child almost to itself. I heard. Heard? Where? Its father frowned, and Elric gave the child his concentrated attention. They came this morning, seeking audience with the council. They met with one of your race, Prince Elric. A Melnabonian? asked Moonglum. Aye, and I heard that some of the same folk were in King Tylus Creek's band. They became still more intrigued. How could I find these sisters and the others? Moonglum demanded. If the street speaks truth, then they no doubt lodge at the great council house as guests of the city. Where's that? The apothecary interrupted. Prince Elric, I would not have you go to Sum alone. I will write you a letter. My boy will take you to the council house. Certain members of the great council are good customers of mine. You will need to be introduced. But first... He crossed to one of several tables, covered in all kinds of curios, many whose function was completely mysterious. He opened a box of ivory-inlaid cedar wood, and took out of it a short string of amber beads, which moved like sluggish flames in the lamplight. He handed this to the albino, who, puzzled, turned it over and over in his long-fingered, bone-white hands. The ember felt warm, almost like living flesh. It seemed to vibrate as if to the beating of tiny wings. You might not need it now, but you might need it some day. It is an acknowledgment of the service you did my old friend. Put it on, said the apothecary. Place the beads around your neck. To humor him, Elric did as he was asked. Wear it until you have the opportunity to use it, Nashatak told him. And when Elric sighed, he added, I can tell that you are one who does not value his own life over much. But that thing might prove useful to you, for I know you have a destiny and a duty to live. I have no personal use for the charm. I wish you good fortune, sir, for I suspect you carry a weird which few would envy. Elric's smile was thin. My folk had lost any sense of sin they might once have had. It was my poor fortune to rediscover it. My destiny is a result of my actions, I suspect. Nonetheless, I value your goodwill. There are few in this world, I suspect, who share it. Thank you. While Elric waited with growing impatience, Nashatak Squet went to his desk and began to write. 
Meanwhile, the strange child continued to watch them through those laughing hazel eyes until its father folded and sealed the letter, handing it to his offspring. "'Go in peace, gentlemen.' The apothecary made a sign to his child, who again took their hands to lead them from the house. Outside, the sky had darkened. Looking up, they saw a three-quarter moon above the rooftops and heard a distant sound like the cawing of a crow. For an instant, they saw black wings outlined in the moonlight— then they were gone, and the city, which on their way here had been so raucous, was momentarily silent. Chapter 2 Two Princesses, A Pair of Dukes The city continued its celebration. The new peacekeepers had not had time to lose the citizens' goodwill. Somewhat cynically, Moonglum reflected on the many times in his journeying through the world when a change of government had been greeted with the same joy— only to be followed by disappointment and anger when the new proved no better. "'People hate real change,' said the stocky Eastlander, "'and are usually only satisfied with superficial and momentary differences, "'at least when law controls the balance. "'Remember how the young kingdoms, "'even as they recovered from their own terrible losses, "'took pleasure in the collapse of your bright empire? "'Now they grumble and curse their own leaders, "'as they once cursed Melnabone.' Some even long for the stability they knew under the sorcerer-emperors. No doubt this republic's satisfaction will last as long. The child led them deeper and deeper up the twisting cobbled lanes of the port, away from the sea, until they looked back at the dark, crowded masts below and the glinting water like ebony beyond. To their left they followed the silhouettes of warehouses and other buildings on both sides of the river, as it wormed out of sight into the distant jungle, seemingly impenetrably dense. They would have to go to those upriver docks in the morning, either alone or in company, depending on what transpired at the council house. The night stank of wine, burning wood and moss, of sweating bodies, roasting meat, and other less identifiable things. Men and women linked arms and stumbled past, singing. Although they had to pause occasionally while Elric rested, the three ignored the crowds and their friendly invitations, walking until the child brought them in sight of the gates of a vast and beautiful building, low and wide, with a tall irregular roof topped by masses of miscellaneous towers, drawbridges, and battlements, all in different styles yet strangely unified, each patrolled and guarded. There! The child pointed to tall towers framing glittering gates. The entrance to the council house! As they approached, they saw that the entrance was festooned with a thousand flags and coats of arm. Again, Moonglum found himself marveling at the wealth and strength displayed. Before he could call out in low Melnabonian to announce themselves, the child shouted something in the local dialect and instantly received a reply. A further exchange followed by a slow rising of a great gate, at which point a liveried officer strode forward to receive the letter handed him by the child. The mismatched trio were left to stand in a circle of brand light, while the officer took the letter away. A short while later, a voice spoke from the darkness, asking their names and business. "'I am Moonglum of Elware, this lord's companion, and he is Prince Elric, Sadric's son, of Melnabone. We seek audience with the Republican Council, concerning a proposed expedition to the ruins of Sum.' And then the child had vanished." Surrounded by soldiers in rather intricate and impractical armor, with plumed helmets hiding all but their disciplined eyes, they were led into the depths of the great palace. They allowed themselves to be marched into a great hall. A celebratory banquet was clearly just ending. 
Diners fell silent as the two entered. The women, in particular, found them interesting. Male curiosity was warier. Rows of tables bore the remains of the elaborate meal. At the head of each table sat a man or a woman wearing identical blue and yellow robes. These were evidently members of the council. A table at the far end of the hall was set crosswise to the others. At its middle, a tall, burly man, in the same livery but wearing a conical black cap, rose to greet them. "'Good evening, Prince Elric. Forgive our hesitation. We heard you were either a legend or a ghost. Two such distinguished travellers are most welcome here. I am Juffa, privileged to be this city's chief counsellor. Please, come and be comfortable at our table. We'll have fresh meat and wine brought. Tonight we are graced with not a few people of high degree— our nation, being a republic, still recognizes those of rank. You are not the first of ancient blood to honor us. He spoke as an habitual diplomat. Two women sat to Jufa's right, and two men to his left. From their clothing they were clearly visitors, but it was not their dress which impressed the newcomers. For a long moment Elric stared into the face of the stranger furthest on the chief counselor's left. The man had risen from his seat, his face pale and his lips pursed a gleam of hatred in his eyes. From his high cheekbones, slanting eyes and ears coming almost to points, he was clearly of Elric's unhuman folk. Elric bowed first to the women, then to the chief counselor, then to the bearded man, and lastly to the one who directed a look of terrible intensity toward him, then raised a piece of meat on his table dagger. Placing it in his mouth, he began to chew with fierce intensity. He took his time swallowing. "'Greetings, cousin,' Elric said. I did not know you still lived. The man controlled himself. At that moment he was almost as pale as Elric. He was Duke Divimar, one of the few dragonmasters to survive Elric's betrayal of their nation to the young kingdom Reavers. Trained from birth to betray no emotion, he barely kept the tremble from his voice. Greetings, Prince Elric. Sadly, I survived where my brothers and sisters did not. You are countrymen, I take it from your appearance. The chief counselor seemed unaware of any tension. Well met, eh? He waved the letter the apothecary had sent with his child. And with common interests, I gather. The other male visitor, with thick blue-black brows, full red lips smiling from within a square, divided black beard, his oiled black curls falling to his shoulders, stared with some amusement at Elric, and then at Divimar. He clearly knew more of Melnabone's recent history than did Juffa. "'Forgive me,' said Councillor Juffa, rising a little unsteadily. "'May I introduce the Prince Elric, the Princesses Apparent of Oit, Princess Nahuadwar, and Princess Samlidor?' Elric and Moonglum bowed. "'And this is Duke Origino, Seneschal of the Shanak Pines, also of Oit.' Bearded Duke Origino rose, his palm outward from his forehead, in what was clearly the normal gesture of greeting of his people. The two princesses were both of exceptional beauty. Nahuadwar was pale-skinned, with wide black eyes and black hair curling to her shoulders. Semlidaor was of a rosy complexion, her auburn hair cut short against her oval face. Both were frowning, not quite able to understand what was happening. Breaking this tension, two huge ginger dogs came to sniff at Elric, growling softly in an almost friendly way and wagging their tails. Duke Origino turned to Divimar and made a joke, but the young man did not respond. His eyes were still fixed on Elric. Councillor Juffa continued, 
The princesses are the twin daughters of Tylus Creek, king of the Oit, and these gentlemen are in their service. Duke Origino was in the late king's household. Last king, interrupted dark-haired Princess Nahuadwar in low tones. We have no proof of his death. She stared steadily at Elric from beneath half-closed lids, her full sensual lips curved in a sardonic half-smile. The regent bowed his head, acknowledging his mistake. We have come because your countrymen failed to protect our father on their recent expedition to Sum, said Nahuadwar icily. We had hoped to recruit other soldiers who might not have his portion of ill luck. At this Elric's kinsman turned away, his eyes hardening. He had been insulted. Duke Origino cleared his throat. But it seems only Divamars, Melnibonians, and a few Lormirians have had the nerve to go to Sum. In spite of offering generous wages, we have been unable to raise soldiers for a second expedition. Elric glanced at Divimar. His cousin spoke evenly, controlling any anger or confusion he felt. I lost twenty-six brave Melnibonians and seven Lormirian archers. The jungle around Sum teems with dwarfish cannibals. We suspect more than one tribe has been traveling for weeks to get there. They attacked us. One Lormirian and I escaped into the river, carrying our wounded, who died. I believe some of our men were taken alive. I suspect we were allowed to escape, perhaps as a warning to others not to attempt a further expedition. The Lormirian is also dead. What brings my kinsman to Nasiatiki? He clearly had some notion of Elric's intentions. I seek a flower, said to bloom and sum once a century, under the light of the full moon. You are a botanist, sir? This from an apparently innocent Princess Samlidor. My father also studied plants. A curious coincidence. Elric inclined his head. There was still considerable tension in the air. But what of these savages? I was told the city was deserted. So it is. The chief counselor was almost amused. Unfortunately, the surrounding jungle is not. It is full of wily, brutish cannibals, thought to be the stunted, degenerate descendants of the Sumish people. Perhaps they regard the city as sacred. They appear to have been gathering all this year. We know not why. Usually, the individual tribes war amongst themselves and offer us and the river traders no serious danger. But clearly I would fail in my duty if I did not keep my people here to defend our own city against this horde should it choose to attack. Aye. Elric drew breath to continue, but was interrupted by a young man who rose from the end of the table. Like many locals, he had deep brown skin and long black hair. He was dressed simply, conservatively, in black, while the collar and cuffs of his white shirt were exposed at the throat and wrist. He carried a heavy, scabbarded sword of antique design. "'I am Horrid Mevza, son of Councillor Menzi of the Eighth Ward.' I have already volunteered to return with the new expedition, no matter how small. Elric guessed the handsome youth to be enamored of the sisters. Moonglum did not smile when he inquired, How many do you command, sir? None. Horrid Mevza sat down again. But perhaps a few of us can reach Sum where a larger party would be more readily detected. True. Elric looked inquiringly at the others. It's as good a logic as any other, said Duke Origino. I'm willing to put it to the test. Princess Samlidor rose suddenly. Then shall we to our beds, my friends? Will you be ready to begin moving upriver in the morning, Prince Elric, Sir Moonglum? Taken aback, but impressed by her decisiveness, Elric smiled. 
If there are no objections to my joining your party, my lady, at least until we are all arrived at Soom. Then look directly at Divin Mar, who said softly, I see no reason why you should betray us on this particular occasion, cousin. We have a good-sized boat in readiness. You will find us at the river harbor soon after sunrise. Elric bowed his head again. I look forward to it. He fought to repress the sense of foreboding which filled him. Not since he had led the attack on his homeland had he felt so unwell. But he had no choice. He would free himself of the black sword's power or die in the attempt. Besides, he felt an obscure compulsion to aid his kinsmen if he could. He knew it was guilt that drove him, but this time he would allow his guilt to rule. Careless as he was of the opinion of the world, which could not hate him more than he hated himself, he would follow these most unmelnabonian urges. Part of him was curious to explore such feelings. Moreover, he found Princess Nahuadwar singularly attractive. He guessed that, were he to succeed and choose to take it, the fruit of the black flower would not be his only prize. As they turned to leave, Princess Nahuadwar's voice came sweet and clear from behind them. "'Do you know what they call that black blossom, Prince Elric?' "'I've heard it called by several names, my lady.' "'The blood flower. They say it yields a sap which can be dried, and from which a drink can be distilled that will give a sickly silver skin the strength he naturally lacks.' When Elric looked back at her, he saw that she was smiling directly into his eyes. Again he offered her a brief bow. "'I have heard that too, madam. But as one wanders the world, one comes across many unlikely tales. A man would be a fool to believe them all.'" There you go, all wrapped up in a fine starship sofa. Don't forget to come back because vol- you've got volume, we've got version parts, or should I say part two and part three to come. Don't forget copyright is Mr. Moore Cox. And a big thank you to Pete for the fantastic narration. Again, if you want to be in volume three of Starship Silver Stories, do shout back as well. Get in touch, starshipsilver at gmail.com. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a valuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.